Perhaps it's because Elizabeth and I just finished listening to the podcast Serial by This American Life, which chronicles a murder in a whodunit fashion that today's story has me so intrigued. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks have now done three major trips, just completing their last to Siberia and beyond. And in today's episode of Adventure Rider Radio, you're going to hear a story of adventure in many of the usual ways. But you're also going to hear about a murder in Siberia that has bikers riding scared. And as the story would have it, deep in the forests of Siberia live some people referred to, at least in this story, as the forest people. The forest people are purported to be very dangerous, or at least some of them are, in an area of Siberia in which, the way we've come to understand it, there are no fuel stations uh, except for this town called Mogacha. The story goes that Mogacha is a very dangerous yet necessary stop for fuel and lodging along this route. Now, there's a local motorcycle club called the Magacha Iron Angels that flag bikers down and bring them back to their clubhouse for safe haven. The backstory is murder and deception, but I'm going to let the Rickses tell you that. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. This is Nick Sanders. I'm Jason Spafford. And I'm Lisa Morris. My name is Austin Vince. This is Rob B. I'm Rachel. This is Ed March. This is Glenn Hickstead. This is Dr. Gregor W. Fraser. This is Dave Barr. This is Alan Carl. This is Chip Nico. Hello, here is Herbert Schmatz. I'm Brett Tatt. This is Zoe Cannell. This is Nathan Millward. My name is Graham Hoskin. This is Joe Russ. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. I'm Simon Thomas. And I'm Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey here. Hi, this is Grant Johnson. This is Robert Wicks. This is Elisa Workman. This is Ted Simon. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter too at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Well, you know what's coming up, the story with the Rickses. But before we do that, we're going to talk with J.J. Lewis from The Good Adventure Company. J.J., how's it going? Hey, Jim, it's going great. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, except for this cold. I'm sure you can hear it in my voice. Uh-huh, yeah. It sounds <laughs> kind of deeper. <laughs> Just a little bit. Hopefully it won't last. Now, you're on the road right now, which is kind of funny, because you're pulled over. Um, you're riding from California to Colorado? I am, I am. And it was. it's been a challenge. It's been... Uh, Quite the difference in weather. JJ, who, who does this in the wintertime? <laughs> I don't know. I've seen a few people out. It must be, I'm not the only one, thank goodness. But, you know, you, you plug in and your, your heated gear, and um, I'm riding just some uh, heated pants and a heated vest and got my grips going full blast and uh, just cover all the exposed areas, and I, you end up staying pretty cozy, you know. But by the time you get back to Colorado, isn't there a chance of snow? Yeah, there's snow on the ground. Um, 
I think where I'm at in Colorado, my wife said, you know, in the shaded areas when you go around the corners where the sun doesn't hit the road, there is some ice. So once I get up there, I'll take it a little bit easy. Uh, but right now, it's, the roads are fine and just a little bit chilly. That's really neat. That's a nice adventure for you. What were you doing in California? I was just doing a, a, a mental health training for my for my main my main job. So I was out there just taking a course and uh, and uh, coming back. Really nice to have an excuse to get out for a ride like that. That's great. I know, I know. I, I did a, I did attend part of the conference. I'll tell you that, but I did do some riding out there. Great <laughs> to hit, hit the twisties in, in uh, California for sure. So you know what I was I wanted to talk about here just to begin with is that you were we were talking before about the Copper Canyon trips. Yeah, we are really excited about that, and um, so I'm working with my contacts in Mexico to coordinate um, what we're going to do for the school in Batopilas, and um, got some guides that are already uh, on board. So uh, we've got Eric Hall from uh, XLADV.com is going to be joining us, and he's going to be one of our our guides, uh, as well as uh, Jesper Dahl. He's a writer out of Seattle, so he's going to be coming down there with us as well uh, to to help help lead. Um, so we've been down there before. And uh, these guys know what they're doing. Uh, but it's going to be um, seven days and six nights. So we'll be crossing over from Arizona um, on the 13th of February and returning uh, back to the States on the 20th. And uh, so the price includes, you know, your, your uh, the, the guiding as well as the hotels um, and uh, the celebratory uh, meal at the, end of the, at the end of the ride. So we're going to be staying in, in various small towns. Um, and then at the end, we're going to be staying um, on the Gulf in San Carlos and uh, celebrating, hopefully, our <laughs> our challenging our challenging routes and success that we we, we made. So now you still have some spots available on this, right? Yeah, we do. We do. Okay, that, so that's good. We want to keep we want, we want to keep it around eight to thirteen people, and uh, we are going to. It's going to be fairly limited to uh, seasoned adventure riders. So you've got to have something under your belt, maybe a Jimmy Lewis course a rawhide course or two, or at least um, a good ride report that can really verify um, that you're able to take um, your, your bike off-road. Because some of the ch- some of the routes that we're going to be doing in the Copper Canyon Gym are pretty pretty intense. Uh, last year, um, there's, a, there's a, a, a road that's an old road, and it's just uh, south of Creel uh, to a, a town called Yokivo. Um, and uh, there's, there's a new road, and there's the old road. And we're going to be taking the old road. And when we did it last year, we uh, we stopped at by a house uh, at, the, at the start of it, and an old man in Spanish comes comes out and basically says the, the the road is being taken over by the earth, and it's very bad. It's very bad. I had to explain to him the very bad road is very good to us. So we had a really really challenging experience. So um, we're going to have our guides there, but we want to make sure that uh, folks that are going are prepared uh, with their bikes being set up with knobbies and um, Good plates, and uh, they're ready. They're ready for the adventure. This is not going to be a hand hand holding, caviar inspired um, adventure uh, guided guided trip. It's going to be a true true adventure for sure. It sounds like it. This is this is really neat. It sounds like my my kind of adventure. But but so but somebody doesn't have to have taken a course, right? You, you're saying that if they can tell you that they're that they're comfortable taking their bike off road, they've done a bunch of off road riding, um, then they can come along. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We just want to make sure that. You know, we're not going to be having to rescue somebody, and uh, people are prepared for for the for the challenging route that that, that part of Mexico offers. Sure. So, experienced riders. So, um, it certainly sounds like the adventure of a lifetime. Yeah, yeah, it, it is going to be a great adventure. That's really. And are then you we're going to be doing? Go ahead. 
Uh, I was going to say, are you going to be videotaping or anything like that? Uh, we're going to be having the GoPros rolling, and we'll be taking lots of photos. And uh, so, you know, when we're done, we'll be putting it all together and uh, and sending it out so folks can can have a record of their trip for sure. And we'll be doing some ride reports on um, ADV Rider as well as XL ADV. And uh, so it's going to be it's going to be a marvelous marvelous trip. Uh, not everything is going to be planned, and so um, that's just part of the part of the great adventure, of, of especially being down there in Mexico. You sort of have to go with the flow, but uh, we are certainly excited to to, to meet, meet the challenge again. Well, that is sort of the difference, I think, between two different styles of trips. So one style of trip you go on, you expect to be sort of toured around and, and everything's done for you, and you you expect to be pampered. The other one is is where you expect to get out there and do some of your own stuff and get your your hands dirty, and, and that's what you're doing. Yeah, yeah but you're not going to be all alone. You know, that's one of the things when I've been down there before. You know, if you're if you're going down there solo or with two, two guys or so, and you've never been down there before, it can get really daunting. Um, and really overwhelming and scary when you're when you're out there. And if you have um, a number of folks that uh, that are going and people that have been there before, it adds that little bit of comfort. But if you've never been down there before and um, you're adventuring down there for the first time, it is life changing, Jim. It is just one of these magical places that the Copper Canyon just is, just uh, overwhelms me every time I'm down there. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that when you go out with other people, you're especially with something like this because it's very well organized, but when you go out with other people, you have that security and, and you're able to do the things that you wouldn't otherwise do. I mean, there's so many times that I'll turn around when I'm by myself that I would love to have kept going, but without any support, you know, you're just pushing your luck. Exactly, exactly. So if you ever want to go down to Mexico in that part of the Copper Canyon and you kind of have been leery to go by your by yourself, um, this, is the tri- this is the trip for you. Uh, because we are gonna, we've been down there before. Uh, we know where to stop. We are where we know where not to stop. And uh, there's just comfort in, in knowing that. But there's also the, the challenge where we ha- sometimes we have to work together to get our bikes to certain places. And uh, that's that's going to be a cool part about it. So JJ, if somebody wants to go, how do they find out more about it? Go to our website, um, good-adv.com, and go to our guided trips page. At the bottom of the page, you'll be able to fill out your information and send it on to me. I've gotten a few emails uh, within the past week and I've had good correspondence with folks that are interested in going. So uh, if you're interested, drop us a line at, at our website. So what else is happening at the Good Adventure Company? Well, Lost for Reason is doing a, uh, a Christmas uh, toy drive and uh, uh, for the Manuelito Children's Home in Gallup, New Mexico, which is, which is a children's home that serves uh, Navajo, Navajo children. And we do this every year with Lost for Reason. And so... When you go and uh, buy your luggage um, or you tell your significant other, hey, this is what I want for uh, the holidays as a gift, um, and you want to buy some Enduristan or Giant Loop um, or Wolfman luggage, um, you know, those proceeds from, from those sales um, will go to help lost for reason and how, and how we're going to bless the, the kids at the Manuelito Children's Home. Um, we've also you know, got Hide Now tires um, in stock ready to go. Um, so that's, that's what I'm going to be riding down in the Copper Canyon, actually. It's a great 50-50 tire. And, uh, you know, I ride the, I ride the hide nows um, on every pass in Colorado without any difficulty. Um, so uh, and you, if you want to get uh, 10% off, just use the coupon code ARR for Adventure Rider Radio, and uh, we'll get you 10% off and get those shipped out. 
Very nice. I like the sound of that. So you just go to the checkout and put in the ARR as a coupon code. And um, the hide no tires. I mean, I'm curious about these. I've never run hide no tires. They have a reputation for you know the the long wear. Um, just a, a really good tire all around. Obviously, you're running them like because I know you guys only run things that you ride yourselves and and believe in. So that's your tire of choice, isn't it? Yeah, I like I like a TKC on the front most of the time. But you know, I've ridden in sand and done the passes this summer with a front Heidi and a rear Heidi, and I, I am just so surprised at how well they hook up. I don't think twice about doing any of the major passes, Black Bear Pass included, on these hide nows. Um, and so that's what I'm going to be running down in the Copper Canyon. Are you changing your own tires, JJ? Yeah, do my own tire changes, and uh, so if folks live in the, you know, the southwest portion of Colorado and want to come by and uh, put your tires on at my place, we, we've, got, we've got the tire changer for you. Oh, wow. Sure. You've got an actual tire changer. Yeah. yeah. Wow, you're spoiled. Yeah. I, I've just got a couple of levers. Oh, oh, Jim, you've got a good tire changer. It's just, <laughs> it's just so much easier. <laughs> I'll have to do that. Well, that's fantastic, JJ. Anything else to add there? No, we just appreciate your support, and uh, we're getting, getting a lot of hits and a lot of interest um, on good ADV, and uh, we just love the, this community and uh, how it's growing, but also how close it is, and appreciate everyone's support. As you know, we're not a big corporate entity. We're not out to make millions of dollars. We're out to change lives and make make the world a better place to live and ride. And we're just doing it step by step. So appreciate everybody's support. And that was JJ Lewis from the Good Adventure Company on the side of the road, actually standing beside his motorcycle. And that's a yeah, boy, that's a good sign, isn't it? When you know uh, that somebody is really into what they're doing. He's out there riding today, even in the winter time. He's going into Colorado when there's going to be snow there. You can check out the Good Adventure Company, good-adv.com. And as uh, I've said before on the show, it is a great setup. They are selling things and taking the profits that they can get out of it and using those profits to feed into charities. It's just an absolutely fantastic setup. You can't go wrong. You get to give and you get the product that you want at the same time. So absolutely fantastic. Check them out, good-adv.com. Tell them we sent you. If you've ever thought about riding Siberia, you're going to want to listen up. This next story, Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks, they've just returned from a big adventure, and part of their adventure was in Siberia. And they're going to tell a story about the forest people, a story that they were told while they were there. Well, it's kind of creepy, to be honest with you. And after I was done the interview, we started to do a little searching around on the internet to see if we could find any other information about it. And we did. There was other notes about it. In at least one case that we found, a rider was told to contact a motorcycle club to ensure safe passage through the town of Magacha. And I think when you hear it, the story, you're going to find yourself rushing to Google to find out more. And here, fresh off the bike, is Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks. Hi, Jim. Hi, Jim. How are you? Ah, very, very good. Where are you guys located right now? We're sitting in the kitchen. <laughs> We're back at home in Melbourne, Australia. So it's uh, it's a nice place to be in um, in springtime in Melbourne, and it's Melbourne Cup Day today. We're the racehorse that stops a nation, so Melbourne's the focus of our great country today. Well, of course, as most of us know, that you have a, a holiday for your Melbourne Cup. 
Uh, we do. Yes, <laughs> a, here, lot of, a lot of people think it's crazy, but we do have a, a, yeah, a public holiday. Yeah, here in Victoria, holiday. we have a public holiday. There's no school. Schools are shut. Everybody enjoys sitting down watching the, the races. They either have picnics in the park and uh, pop champagne corks everywhere, or they go to the races. There'd be 100,000 people at the races, and there's horses from all over the world competing today. And everyone will have a sweep in, in their local you know barbecue or, or at work. They have a sweep and pick their horses and... Everyone gets involved, even people who never have a bet. It's not unusual for someone to have a bet on Cup Day. But uh, for, for, for guys who ride motorbikes, it's a great day to get out on the road because there isn't much traffic around in the hills. <laughs> I, I like that point of view, Brian. That's really good. And, of course, I had no idea about the Melbourne Cup before you guys had told me about it today. But I, I think it's interesting. It, you know, do you guys have a lot of holidays that are made up of, of different things like this? Yeah, we do. Uh, we actually now have one the day before the grand final of our football competition. And a lot of people think that is even crazier. The day before. Uh, now, what is that for practice or is that just to get yourself ready no, to get the beer? They have a, they have a uh, grand parade in the city here in Melbourne. That the, 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 uh, the AFL final is always played in uh, the MCG, the Melbourne Cricket Ground, which holds 100,000 people. And it's packed to capacity on that day, on that Saturday. So on the Friday, they've had, they have a public holiday. We have 13 public holidays a year now. So other than your full normal four weeks um, annual leave, you get another 13 days public holidays. We still Ooh, have yeah. Queen's birthday public holiday. Is that right? Well, <laughs> I don't know how many public holidays we have, but I don't think it's that many. I mean, well, you know, we've got a, a, the odd one here and there that takes a long weekend, but I think you guys are more into enjoying yourselves than what we are by the sounds of it. We love a long weekend. And um, it took a lot of convincing for some people that special holidays like Anzac Day, which is the 25th of April, or Australia Day, which is the 26th of January, should actually be held on that day and not the closest Friday to give you a long weekend. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, now you guys are, are located, as Shirley said, back in your kitchen, back in the kitchen. Um, you just came back from a fair-sized trip. How many trips have you done now in total? I mean, what you would call big trips? Oh, well, we've done three uh, big overseas trips now. Um, the first one was 2003. Um, we shipped a motorcycle to London. Um, did every motorcyclist dream, went to the Isle of Man TT and watched that. Um, over to Ireland, we've watched the Northwest 200. We actually saw Joey Dunlop race, if uh, people know about Joey Dunlop, the, the famous Irish racer. Uh, we then travelled back across through Europe and uh, down into Greece and Iran, uh, Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, and basically rode our way back to Melbourne. And uh, that was our first one. Our second one was we shipped our bike to Chile and rode all the Americas, went down to Antarctica, uh, up to uh, Alaska, up to Prudhoe Bay, into, um, uh, we ship actually flew the bike from Canada to the UK, went down through Europe. The plan was to go through Northern Africa, but in those days, the Africa was in turmoil and we couldn't get through there. So we shipped it to Johannesburg and rode up as far as we could, then rode home. And this last one, we shipped the bike to Greece, um, went through Eastern Europe all the way up through and then across over to Austria, Germany, and up through um, Scandinavia to Nordcap, to the most northern point of uh, uh, Europe, and then um, decided to cut across Russia and the Silk Road, down to the Silk Road and into the stands, um, went right down to Afghanistan, or to the border with Afghanistan, and then back up into uh, 
uh, Russia and Mongolia and across to Vladivostok and then uh, to South Korea before shipping home, Jim. Wow, that uh, that is a nice trip. <laughs> so so let's look at that that last trip, the one you've just come back from, the one you're just sort of getting unwound from. I guess you said you've been home four weeks now, um, and I and I did see on Facebook your bike only arrived what two weeks ago, something like that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Friday a week ago, yeah. When you were setting out for this trip, and I know we talked about this one other time, just a, a little bit about the planning for it, but was your overall plan what ended up happening for the trip? Yeah, it was yeah, pretty yeah, much. Yeah, basically, we well, we, when we first uh, started planning this trip, I really thought we could do the Isle of Man TT. I've got a mate who races there uh, at the moment, and I thought well, we could do that and then head off. But when I looked at the timings and I looked at the weather patterns, I thought, well, we can't fit it all in. So we, we cut out the Isle of Man and uh, went straight up to Nordcap. And as it was, uh, a week or less than a week after we left um, Russia, uh, it was snowing and uh, quite quite cold, and it would have been quite dangerous travelling through those remote areas of Siberia um, uh, a week later than what we were, I think. How much prep time did you put into this? I mean, you're talking a lot of countries here. There's a lot of things to deal with, a lot of paperwork yeah. to deal with. How much time did you invest before you actually left? We did probably um, probably about six months. This. This trip came about by Brian having lunch with people who from now on he's banned, as far as I'm concerned, for having lunch with these people. So he came home and said, oh, I've booked the bike on a, on a ship to take it to Greece next year. Oh, terrific. Okay. Um, so from there on we started looking at um, the visas. biggest problem was the visas for Russia, uh, for Russia and the stands. Uh, Europe is a piece of cake. We just arrived in Greece and had our passport stamped and we had 90 days from then to travel around all of Europe, so that wasn't a, that wasn't a problem at all. But um, Russia, because we wanted to go in and out of Russia more than once, we had to get a business visa that entails getting a letter of introduction, which is really craziness because the people who gave us the letter of introduction were paid. I mean, they didn't know us from Adam, and that's the way everyone gets their letters of introduction through travel agencies and things like that. And then we had to organise the timing of getting our visas for the stands because most of them said you've got so many days from when you get your visa, you have to be at the border. Um, so we had to work out what countries we would be in in Europe that we could go and apply for those visas. And where those embassies were yeah. because they're not everywhere. So uh, there was a fair bit of planning in that, gym. So anyone who wants to do the Silk Road, you've really got to think about it unless you want to wait uh, a week at borders and things like that. so Because there's only one country that Australians can get into without a visa and that's Kyrgyzstan. We just arrived at the border and they just stamped us in um, because we had a current Australian passport but everywhere else we needed a visa before we got to the border. Do you get the feeling when you're trying to get into a country and they're telling you that you've only got a limited time, do you get the feeling that they, they really don't want you there, that they're sort of you know feeling obligated to allow you to go through for a certain period of time? Uh, I think it's just a way of them making money. I think, yeah, I think it's a bureaucratic uh, thing to make money more than anything else. Um, I've got to say, Jim, people travelling these hear about us travelling through these countries, and they, they they think, oh, you're brave, you know, I couldn't do that. But look, people are the same the world over. They they laugh at you, they they joke with you, they want to help you if you're in trouble. Uh, we've had nothing but smiles and, and we haven't had really a bad experience. And that to me is what travel's all about, is learning that uh, people are the same. But with the, um, with the countries limiting you, with the stands, they all used to be part of the Soviet Union. 
and some of them, Uzbekistan in particular, mm. it's still very much like the Soviet Union bureaucracy. You know, every night our passports were taken from the hotel to the local police and we mm. were registered and you, um, we were told that we had to keep a track of how much foreign currency we spent and how much local currency we spent. In the end, when we left the country, we didn't have a problem, but we met people who left the country and had to show how much money they still had left, had to show their um, yeah. receipts from banks. And so a lot of that's a hangover from the old Soviet Union, and I think they'll, they'll get over that. Well, I hope they do anyway because that's a bit of a, a, a worry when you're concerned that you're not going to have the right paperwork to get other, out of the country. And the other thing is some uh, places they would give you a receipt for the, where you stayed that night that you were supposed to hand into the um, the border guards when you leave the country so they could track where you were. Um, we kept some of the receipts but were never, ever asked to hand them in. No, I tried to give them to one border guard and he just looked at me as if I was a lunatic. <coughs> no, nah, we don't need those. Off you go. <coughs> So it's just a, just a matter of habit, really, just the way the system is, and they're sort of sticking to it for now. Yeah. I think so. And and in, in Russia itself, um, I'm sure that's a lot of the, the hangover from the Soviet days because there um, we got receipts from some of the hotels and um, we're sure that certainly in the smaller towns we saw the people coming to get our passports and taking them away. And, you know, you'd leave your passport when you checked in and you'd get it back when you checked out. So... All those things are a hangover, and I'm sure as more and more tourists go to those areas, um, things will lighten up. I mean, places like Moscow and St Petersburg, we didn't get receipts, we didn't have any problems because they're huge tourist destinations now. When you're getting your carne and your visas and other things that you need for travel, how much money are you spending on all of this? Oh. <laughs> um, our Russian visas probably cost us about or more than $1,000 each. No, no. About thousand yeah. dollars for the two of yeah. them, and yeah. that included the letter of introduction. And the Australian dollar is about the on par with the Canadian dollar most of the time, so that's not cheap. No, definitely not. And so overall, what do you think you end up spending on a trip like this? Well, we probably spent five or six thousand dollars on visas. Yeah, because yeah. we had to get. Um, we only actually ended up having two letters of introduction, um, and that adds an extra layer of cost. Um, and uh, even the visas to Mongolia, which we got in um, in Russia within an hour of walking into the embassy, we had our visas, but they cost us uh, $75 US each. And, of course, the Australian dollar while we were overseas was plummeting to become the Southeast Asian peso. So um, that cost us more all the time because everything was in US dollars. And uh, for, for example, traveling in uh, South Korea, you know, it's, it's not that expensive to get, you, know, you don't need really a visa to get into South Korea, but riding a motorcycle, you need to have it uh, authorized to travel on their roads. And that was over 300 US dollars for about a week. And uh, with that, you, you then can't travel on freeways or autobahns because they don't want motorcycles on those roads. So you're really uh, re restricted to the, the smaller back roads and country roads in South Korea. So little tricks and things like that happen, Jim. So as long as you were willing to pay the money and put in the time for the paperwork, you would get it? Oh, yes. Mm. Yeah, we didn't hear of anyone getting knocked back anywhere. Um, we heard of people having trouble just the time it took to get through borders, like mm. Uzbekistan, where they want to see all your medication and we carried a letter from our doctor explaining what our medication was for, not that they could have read it because it was in English. Um, and these things just take time. And the one thing we learnt very early on in our travels 
is do not get aggravated at a border because it doesn't do you any good whatsoever. Always smile at the man who has the stamp to get you into the country and always smile at the man with the AK-47. Yeah, I always say to Shirley, we, we never want to arrive there tired and grumpy. Uh, we would quite often stop um, just short of the border and go there first thing in the morning and be prepared to take a day crossing the border. And I don't think we've waited any longer than four to six hours yeah. at any border across the world. But we did cross into one border in the stands and our bike, Jim, is very tall. And um, for me to get on and off the bike, it is a bit of a, a circus performance because I have to sort of give myself one, two, three, alley-oop and over. And one of the border guards was talking to Brian while I was in doing my paperwork and he wanted to know how I got on the bike and he thought it was hilarious when I got up onto the bike and he was just laughing his head off as we rode out of the border. And I thought, well, if nothing else, I've given him something to talk to his family about tonight. <laughs> yes, that's for sure. Well, and then that's making good relations too. That makes the whole thing feel good, doesn't it? It does, exactly. yeah. And you say you're Australian and they always do their kangaroo impersonations and we laugh as if it's the first time we've ever seen it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Isn't that funny? The things that we're known for from our country. And I, I don't think there's anything Canadians are known for. I know we're, you know, there's uh, there's probably no Canadian jokes. I mean, there's no Canadian jokes, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I, just stop it there, Jim. That's <laughs> exactly what I was doing. <laughs> so what, what was it like driving? I mean, well, first of all, let, let me talk about language, because I know that, you know, you guys are planning this being your third trip. You probably took lessons and learned all the languages for all the countries you were going through. How did that work for you? I tried to learn how to read the um, the Cyrillic alphabet and gave up after about a month of looking at these letters and not getting just my brain just wouldn't compute with them. It was just no good at all. Um, and we got this fabulous book called Picture Talk, and uh, it's a travel dictionary, which is just pictures of animals, food, um, configurations of hotel rooms, tents. Our planes, trains, everything you can imagine you will need to ask someone about, you can use this picture book. Um, for instance, there's a little roof with a double bed in it. So I'd point to that and they'd say no, no, and then point to the picture next to it, which was a little roof with twin beds into it. in it. And then you'd point to the shower and the toilet to make sure that you had that with your room. And it got us out of a lot of trouble and broke down a lot of barriers and we had a lot of fun. A lot of people laughed as we got this book out and... And, it, um, and it's small enough to fit in a pocket. It's yeah. only it's only about thirty or forty pages, laminated pages, uh, a little bit bigger than a, a standard notebook, not much bigger. <clears throat> so it was perfect for travelling. I remember you mentioning it before, and I looked it up, and it's yeah, it's much like a, a children's book, isn't it? It yes, is. Yes. It is. Uh, we were in a restaurant in. Kazakhstan and I pointed to the chicken and slapped my backside and we got chicken Maryland grilled with vegetables. It was really nice. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Boy, you really did work that. I mean, I was <laughs> I was going to comment on the fact that you spent a month looking at, at the alphabet, the Cyric alphabet, and not and then only after that month you decided to give it up. I, that's that's impressive yeah, stuff. I really wanted to learn to speak Russian, and I got the book Russian for Dummies. I got uh, an online learn a word of Russian a day. And it just did my head in. But while we were riding through those countries, and of course the first ones you come across, um, 
in the in the old Eastern Europe, um, Bulgaria, mm. I think, still uses that those that alphabet. Um, you start to get the hang of it, and particularly towns. By the time we were on the road every day, I'd mm. be able to tell Brian what part of that sign was the town we'd know we were going to, and um, things like the sign that said Pectapa is actually restaurant, because the P is an R and the uh, yeah. The SC is an S, so Pectopar was restaurant. So we, we worked out things like that and cafe and hotel, um, all the important ones. And petrol stations look like petrol stations, so they're okay. <laughs> and they and their numbers are, are, are normal Roman numbers, so we were over, well, the normal Latin numbers, we were right with those. When you could find a petrol station. So yeah, well, that's Sometimes true. it was a little difficult. <laughs> was there anything that was completely bizarre that you came across? Oh, bizarre. You know, actually, petrol is was b- bizarre for me. Um, that's my job to go and pay for the petrol while Brian fills up the bike. And in Russia, you have to pay before you fuel up. And that's something that happens here in Australia at night now to stop people driving off without paying. So I, the, one of the first words I, words I learned was polny, which means full. And you would go and say that we wanted full. No, they wouldn't do that. We'd have to tell them how many litres. And I can count to 10 in Russian but not beyond that, so we would have to get a piece of paper and write down what ron of fuel we wanted, that we wanted 95 and and how many litres. And a lot of the women who take the money in these petrol stations live in a little box with a tiny weeny little window and they're just a disembodied voice. And they would say something to me in Russian and I'd say, I'm sorry, I don't speak Russian. So they would shout at me as if shouting at me would make me understand Russian more. <laughs> so I'd say, look, I'm sorry, you can shout at me as long as you like, but I will still not understand what you're trying to say to me. And they would get so exasperated, but so would I. I found it so frustrating because all we wanted them to do was turn the bloody petrol tank on so we could get our petrol and get out. <laughs> so what do you end up doing, just shoving some money under there? Yeah, yeah, I just put in way more than than they expect that than we knew it would take, and then wait for the change. But if they were in a normal petrol station and they were behind a counter, they were usually very friendly. But the ones that were lived in these little boxes, I guess, because they lived in a little box and had no interaction with people other than through a, a tiny window, they probably weren't very happy souls. Well, the, you know, we, we did buy petrol off guys on the side of the road with yes. a petrol tank and, a, and a, a, a plastic barrel full of petrol that was uh, decanted out with a, a glass jar. Um God knows what Ron that was, uh, so but you can't be too too fussy. Uh, but they were all pretty friendly. They were lovely. Yeah, they were yeah. great. But no what problem. a way to earn a living sitting on the side of a dirt road in the middle of nowhere with a petrol tanker. Yeah, well, it could be very good. Who knows? Who knows how lucrative it is for them? Oh, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure they made a living out of it, but not a. a it's not a way I'd like to make my living, Jim. Yeah, no. I, well, it may be better than the booth, though. I mean, they're probably happier. <laughs> At least he saw daylight. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an interesting observation you make, Shirley, because I think that I, I run into that as well. Anytime you're dealing with somebody that seems to be closed into something, they seem to be very disconnected with the outside world. It's like they, I don't know if it's a level of protection they feel or, or what it is, but they just sort of treat you like you're, a, you're just a thing. Uh, and, and the fact that we couldn't speak Russian made them even more irritated, I think. But yet we had other experiences. Um, In Russia, we met up with some Australians who were driving vintage cars um, from Bondi in Sydney through uh, through to the Baltic. And we went out to dinner. So there was seven Australians 
and the waiter spoke very, very little English, but they had an English menu and so we'd point to what we wanted and he'd look at the Russian equivalent and then we started ordering drinks and it was very, very confusing, but he at no stage did he lose his personality or sense of humour and he laughed and he was just so utterly charming. And the all of the Australians agreed that if seven Russians walked into a restaurant in um, in Australia and tried to do the same thing, the, the waiters would get very belligerent about it. So, you know, so many of them were so understanding and, and very pleasant to us, even though we couldn't speak more than 10 words of their language. Well, coming up in just a minute, Shirley and Brian are going to get to their story about the forest people. But first, I want to talk to you about one of our show sponsors, Aerostitch Manufacturing. First of all, I'm going to start with the catalog. If you have not got the catalog, you have got to get it. I don't know if you had it when you were a kid, but when I was a kid, there was department stores that had those really thick catalogs. I mean, they had to be like three inches thick or something like that. You could actually put them underneath you and boost yourself up, almost like a telephone book. And they were filled with every kind of toy you could imagine as a kid. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. Well, that's sort of how I feel about the, the Aerostitch catalog. It's it's filled with so many toys for bikers that you, you just can't get enough of it. You just sit there and, and go through it continuously thinking, oh yeah, I would like to get that. I'd like to get that. Really neat. And it's free. So drop by their website aerostitch.com grab their catalog don't forget to tell them you heard them here on adventure rider radio now i was going to mention aerostitch has been around for a long time and this is kind of neat when you're dealing with a company to realize that there's such a history here you can go to their website and they've actually got a, a button on their history i think it's in the about us but you can click on it and it gives you a rundown of their history like they started back in 1983 and what they started doing was they started offering um or at least what they, what they wanted to do was offer lightweight garments and they were using textiles to do it so it was a little bit different. And they came out with the, the Roadcrafter suit, which they still make today. And this thing has been through multiple generations and it's been advanced the whole way along. So when you're buying a, a, a riding suit from them, you're, you're talking about like 33 years of learning. That's a lot of learning. And that, that's a lot of uh, knowledge that goes with it. They started the catalogs, I think, back in, in 1995, I think somewhere around there. And they started mailing out catalogs and then they started getting into handling other gear. Oh, one of the things you might want to look at actually is the um the gloves they have amazing leather gloves they're elk and deer gloves if you like leather and i certainly do for as far as gloves go i mean nothing feels as nice um for grip and the whole bit but they have these incredible gloves that they're they're actually washable which is kind of weird i mean you wouldn't think that you could wash that sort of material but they've got a set that are washable well, well they started way back when and the story goes that um i guess they were they were going to um to sturgis in south dakota and they stopped off at um the wall drug, which I'm not familiar with, but apparently it's a complex with a bunch of stores and everything. And and what they came across was um, these these gloves that they were selling, elkskin rancher gloves. And by the time they rode back, they were completely in love with them. So they contacted the manufacturer, ended up selling them. They sold like crazy. And then they changed, they, they started making their own specifically for bikers. You know, the bike gloves, you got a bit of a contour that allows you to, to grip your, your handlebar better and without strain, so you're not straining the hand around. That's the big difference between buying, you know, just a set of, of regular gloves and ones that are specifically made for bikes. They just fit so much better. And if you're riding for a long time, wow, big difference. Then they've got a little scraper on there, you know, like a little squeegee thing for your, your visor and everything. Really cool. That, that's the kind of stuff they do. And, and that's what I really love about Aerostitch. 
Oh, yeah. And the other thing I wanted to mention was this impresses me. The Ride More Guarantee. One month, 100% money back. I'm, I'm reading it right off their website. Guarantee. If you try an Aerostitch one-piece suit and you're not riding more after the month, you can send it back and get a full refund. That's pretty amazing. You know, you got to be pretty confident in your product to do that. So drop by their website, get their catalog. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. You just go on there, fill out your information, get them to mail you out the catalog. I guarantee you're going to love it. It's going to give you hours and hours of entertainment. And um, don't forget to tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Drop by their website, aerostitch.com. And now back with Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks, and they're going to get into their story about the forest people. What about other bikers when you came across other bikers, Russian bikers, I mean? Was there a connection there oh, immediately? Oh, I, oh, very much so, Jim. Um, we were traveling uh, in Mongolia, uh, going one way, and this motorcycle was coming the other way, and the first thing he did was pulled over onto our side of the road and stopped. And he couldn't speak a word of English. We couldn't speak Russian. But we worked out he was from Siberia. He wanted to know why we were going into Mongolia at this time of year and where we were going. And when I told him, he said, hurry, hurry, snow, snow. <laughs> <laughs> and he wanted his photo taken, gave us stickers from his, his hometown. Um, all the Russian bikers are so, so friendly. And uh, we um, were, were in a little place in uh, Siberia. It was freezing cold raining um, uh, and on the Trans-Siberian Road there's no infrastructure or very very little infrastructure and all the road all the roads off it lead to little towns so you've really got to know which little town you want to go to because you could travel five six ten kilometers down a road and have to turn around and come back and um, we traveled into this little town we're very low on fuel it's miserable we're looking for a hotel which we couldn't find and next thing this little car pulls up uh, a, a beaten up old larder. The window winds down. This big billow of smoke comes out, and uh, a hand comes out. Clubhouse, clubhouse, follow. And it was a local motorcycle club that uh, have a. Um, it's not not much more than a shed, but it's there to um, uh, protect people uh, who come come through on motorbikes because it's quite dangerous camping in Siberia. They've had people murdered uh, in the bush there by what they call the forest people. So they look for people traveling uh, across that part of the world and they take you to safe havens. They were the Magotcha Iron Angels and they were certainly our angels that night. Um, Their clubhouse was rudimentary in the extreme, but it was dry. It was a roof over our heads. They took us out to dinner and bought us dumplings and local soup, which was very nice. And then um, we sat and drank Russian beer with them and talked through a couple of them spoke a bit of English and we used the picture talk book and, and uh, they were really lovely and they let us stay the night in their clubhouse so they certainly saved us that night hang on you're saying people are getting murdered in that area by the, by these forest people tell me more about that uh, yeah there was there's uh, the reason this clubhouse was set up at Magotcha is there was one guy uh, a friend uh, a motorcyclist who camped on the side of the road um, uh, which, in the is, forest. which is not uncommon. Um, and he was befriended by one of these um, um, forest people who ended up murdering him. Uh, he was His body was taken away uh, and uh, burnt. Now, it, it, this, this young fellow was um, uh, about 32 years of age. The, uh, the local bikers 
were looking for him. I couldn't find him. And they went to the police. The police did nothing. So they organised a line search and they searched through that area and found his body. They found the guy who had um, uh, murdered him because he was wearing his clothing. And um, I think after a little bit of attitude readjustment, he was handed over to the police. Um, but there was also a person there who was looking after him who ran a cafe. Well, mysteriously, that cafe burnt down. So <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's a little bit like the Wild West out there, Jim, I've got to say. But um, they, they really are very protective of you. And they've built a monument now to their friend who was murdered. And every year in the August, um, to commemorate his his passing, the riders from Novosibirsk, uh, oh, sorry, from Vladivostok, from both sides mm. of Siberia, come and meet at, at this memorial, and they have a weekend where they um, probably drink and tell stories, like like friends getting together do. And uh, there are lots of uh, stickers from international travellers on the memorial, and we put um, one of our stickers on it, and there's flowers there, and. And there's even a sign on the highway pointing you to where the memorial is. And it's all about protecting motorcyclists. And that's why they, as soon as they saw us riding through the streets of Magotcha, mm-hmm. they wound the window down and told us to come with them. And um, and they were really very lovely to us to give us that uh, bed for the night and and lots of good company. It's a, it's a great memory from our trip. And, Jim, they don't ask for any money. Um, but uh, I, I made sure that I, I left money in their, their little um, tin that they had there. But they didn't ask us for a cent. They wouldn't pay. For, they wouldn't let us pay for our dinner. And where they took us for dinner was next to a supermarket. So I went in there and bought some snacks and some some beer and a bottle of vodka. And so we were able to contribute something when we got back to the to the clubhouse. And we'd been there back after dinner for about an hour. And we heard a few motorbikes arrive. And next thing. Um, a Chilean motorcyclist arrived who they had also found on the highway and he came and stayed the night as well. So, and there was a, a young fellow from um, Vladivostok. So there were the four of us there. Did you guys know about this before you got to that area? We had actually met a yeah. couple who'd stayed there, a couple of Australians that we know, um, Ken and Carol Duval. They'd stayed there a month or two before us. Wow, and what area exactly is that where they they feel there's a problem? Uh, it's um, through Siberia, yeah, really. Yeah, basically um, f- from um, the bottom part of Lake Baikal, uh, head east, uh, and before you turn south, be- before you head down to um, Vladivostok. So you're probably looking at about two to three thousand kilometres of road across there. Now, say we were told not to camp um, and the weather was a bit inclement, was a bit chilly to camp for us, but we met some uh, a New Zealander on the road and he emailed us to stay, say he and some other uh, motorcyclists had camped a couple of nights and one night some of the local um, forest people, as they call them, came up, but he said they were quite friendly, but certainly they camped well off the road so they couldn't be seen and uh, avoided lighting a fire and things like that. But um, we always take local advice on that. We were told in Iran people were told not to camp and the ones that did had a few problems. We were told not to camp in Siberia by the locals. That'll do us. They tell you those things for a reason. The for- I don't mean to, to, to focus on this, but the forest people, what exactly is that? Is that just people who are living <laughs> off the <laughs> land? They're just people that live in the forest, Jim, and they're very, very poor. Uh, we would see people um, sitting on the side of the road in the mist as you'd ride along, 
freezing cold, sitting on a wooden box with a plastic bucket in front of them, trying to sell mushrooms that they'd forage in the forest. So extremely poor, impoverished people out there. We're not talking like deliverance, Jim. I guess that's something we should make clear. They're just they're people well, who live in small villages in these forests in Siberia where I guess life must be so hard when it's... Um, Minus you know, temperatures down to minus 50 during winter mm. and subsistence living. Um, and now they're living in a country that doesn't support the, the poor and the elderly the way it used to be in the Soviet Union. So I think people like that probably find life even a little tougher than they used to, but I guess life's probably never been easy for them living in places like that. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, what about supplies for you while you're in these areas? Were, were supplies easy to find? Um, well, yeah, most yeah. towns had supermarkets and um, if we'd had the space to stop and buy some of the fresh tomatoes and things mm. that they were selling on the side of the road and big jars of pickles and things like that. Honey. Yeah, yeah honey. honey. It was honey season, but they sell everything in huge jars so we couldn't really stop and get a little jar of honey. But um, all the towns have either a supermarket or a mini market and um, they, we could always get... Um, water and soft drink you can buy beer everywhere in all those little mini markets sell beer um a lot of them sell uh vodka the, the local vodka which is you know cheap and not so a lot a lot of time not so much fresh stuff but that's just because of where they are that they're so isolated if you can't read anything, how do you know what you're buying off the shelf? Uh, they have drawings on tins. <laughs> if it didn't have a drawing on the tin, we wouldn't buy it. So you're looking for pictures. Oh, yeah, it all goes back to pictures. And um, and sometimes um, they would have English as well as the, the local language on some things, some things that if they were imported. And we found in... Um, Uzbekistan, some local shops sold vodka and other local shops sold whiskey. So it was as if there was a, a division in the town and they weren't encroaching on each other's areas. And we could buy bottled water everywhere. And in some places, we'd ask, always ask for cold water. That was a, a word I knew before we hit Russia. I knew cold would be a, an important word. And um, they, some of them would have frozen bottles of water. So we would buy one that didn't have too much ice in it and one that was totally frozen so we'd still have cold water an hour down the road because um, in some of those places going through the Silk Road, we were getting up to 47 degrees during the day. Oh, wow. That's a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? Oh, yes, very. Yeah. So, so we had extremes of weather on this trip, Jim, that's for sure. The um, when we're, you were talking about language, you you didn't find any real English speaking. Then it's it's really just Russian. Uh, I mean, or I'm certainly not. They're not going to speak Australian. It's, look, some of some people spoke um, German as their second language, which wasn't very helpful. I can speak a few words of German, but um, you could usually find young people would speak a bit of English because they were learning English at yeah. school. Um, and sometimes you would find they spoke English with a very strong American accent because they'd been watching television and learning learning English from American television. So we'd always find um, people that could speak English, and, you know, they'd say that at the hotel they'd say no one speaks English, but you'd find one of the members of staff would speak enough English that we would be able to work out which room we were in and if we had a problem with the Wi-Fi and things like that. You could always solve those problems. So we never really felt totally isolated, did we? No, 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 no. 
That that was bringing me to the next question was about internet access. Did you find that their internet is sort of everywhere now? Oh, yeah. everywhere and free. Unlike Australia, where uh, internet internet is charged, they charge for internet at most hotels here. And we would stay. There was one guest house in the middle of the Pamir region that had no Wi-Fi. Everywhere else had yeah. Wi-Fi, and I don't think we paid for it once. No. But that's at a hotel. I mean, that's the same sort of thing in, in North America. Um, often Wi-Fi is, I mean, I think everybody does it now. Wi-Fi is included. I, mean, I guess somebody started saying they'd include it, and then everybody includes it, and it's everywhere. But what about if you weren't staying somewhere where there's still places to access the Internet? Oh, Sometimes cafes would have it. Yeah. Some towns would have Wi-Fi in sections in the square. Mm. So you would go to, you know, outside the tourist office or the town hall and there would be free Wi-Fi. You'd just look for the kids with the phones and if there were five kids standing somewhere with a phone, there was free Wi-Fi there. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's so, a good tip. Um, yeah, so we um, – and I'm just trying – we didn't camp very much, I have to say, but – even some of the small lodge yeah, campgrounds had, had Wi-Fi. Yeah. Maybe for some of them only had it for three hours in the morning and three hours at night, but but they had it and uh, you just, they'd give you the password or sometimes you didn't even need the password. What were your big lessons that you learned on this trip? Oh, Ooh, big gee. lessons. The fact that we're getting older and it's getting a little harder, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Look, um, Travelling two up on a bike is completely different to travelling solo on a bike. And uh, travelling two up, you need a big, strong bike to be able to carry two of you as far as it. And our bike has been fantastic. It's done over 200,000 kilometres now doing that. But if you're going into those remote areas where there's a lot of sand and uh, river crossings and things like that, a lighter bike is a lot easier to manhandle. Um, yeah, I think... Um, our lessons in travelling, well, you know, if you just want to get out there and do it, you'll, you'll find your way. You, you know, you might find that you've uh, packed too much. Well, if you have, throw it away or send it home. We have done three big trips now and we still don't get packing right. Uh, one of us so, doesn't. Well, one of us doesn't. That could be me. Um, because we just it doesn't matter how hard we, I, try. <laughs> oh, we, we sent 10 kilos home before we left Europe. Is Stuff right? we just knew. We'd, oh, why did we pack that? That was just ridiculous. And um, we've got a set of very well-travelled tyre pliers that um, live in the bottom of my pannier and they weigh a tonne and they've never been used. And I like it that way, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to change a, a tubeless tyre on the side of the road? These things are great, but they are very heavy and uh, I think it's uh, an omen that I, if I carry them, I don't get a flat tyre. Yeah, that, that does tend to happen, doesn't it? The moment you take it out, then you find you're, you're going to need it. But, Brian, you, you're not going to tell us about how you pack your panniers? <laughs> well, anyone who's familiar with a BMW GS, uh, one pannier is smaller than the other, even though I'm quite a bit bigger than Shirley. I get the small pannier, Jim. I tell you, I get the small pannier. And when we discuss this with couples on the road, all the women go, so? <laughs> you're, you're surprised by this? And even so, you know, you get home and you just think, I never want to see those clothes again. Yet I have more clothes with me than um, some girls I've met on the road. Um, we have a small amount of cooking gear. and But 
there's so many places we have very good friends a german couple that have traveled a lot on two bikes so they can carry a lot more than us and when we stayed with them in germany this year they were saying that never again will they take cooking gear because um they did the same trip as us through siberia and they said even the most remote town will have a cafe and they're right you know the food might not be brilliant but you will always get something to eat so just to save a bit of space and weight they won't carry their their cooking gear again the uh, american yeah i mean the american guy we traveled with through norway said never will he bring camping gear to europe he said why would you bother the hostels are so cheap you can stay in cabins in the campgrounds for a few dollars more than pitching your tent so he just travels with a sleeping bag and uh, so he, he doesn't have a whole bag of gear anymore. So there's things like that that you learn every time you go. And But you guys did have your camping gear with you on this trip? We yeah, did. Yeah, we did. Um, we thought that um, and, and I thought that uh, we might need it in certain places and we did use our sleeping bags, sleeping bag liners and our tent. Um, but really um, a lot of our camping gear, uh, as time went on, we just um, – jettisoned that, sent it home or whatever, uh, and just lightened the load as much as we could. Carry food. You can carry canned food. You don't have to heat it. I did have a a little jet boil with me so I could heat water if we needed to. The main reason was that if we couldn't get fresh water, I could boil it and boil it and boil it and try and uh, have clean water at least. But we we didn't use it. Any real fantastic things that you didn't expect? Oh... Yeah, I uh, so. yeah, I I didn't expect to love Russia. I knew I would um, enjoy St. Petersburg and Moscow because I've been there before and they're such beautiful cities. But the towns, every town we went through, every big town we went through in Russia had something wonderful to offer, whether it was great architecture or always um, fun people, yeah. even when you can't speak the language. Once you break down the reserve of the Russian people, they're very reserved they are very friendly, and um, if you enjoy their country, they just think it's so wonderful. You go to some, you know towns in Siberia like Irkutsk and mm. and uh, Ulan Ude, where they don't get a lot of foreigners. Um, they just think it's fabulous when they ask where you're from and you're from Australia. Do you like our city? Oh, we love your city, and oh, they just think that's fantastic. So th- those. Those things are great, great joy for me. I just think that's fantastic. And the Silk Road, even though it was, even though it was really, really hard, Jim, uh, because of the heat, it was uh, well worth it to go to those beautiful villages that or cities that were used um, to to trade across the to Europe. Uh, they're still there. All the beautiful um, architecture, the adobe walls, the uh, ceramic tiled um, buildings. Fantastic. Even the squares with um, platforms where they traded slaves are still there. And to see, to see that is uh, really something special in my book. Well, I was going to ask if you would do the trip again, but it sounds like you would. There's certain areas I would go to. Um, I, I think uh, there's other parts of the world that we'd go to before that now. We've done that. Um, trying to find a road that we haven't done is uh, getting a little harder, Jim, I've got to say. But <laughs> um, I think, uh, yeah, that... that that Silk Road area, I would probably go back and have another look at. Maybe in an air-conditioned car. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to cut that part out. Surely, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you didn't go get soft on this trip, did you? Because I, I know there was times when you found it a little bit stressful. I mean, when I spoke to you guys last time, there was you guys, had, were, I think, were experiencing quite a bit of stress. Uh, the one I can't remember where you were now. 
Um, look, parts of it I found really, really hard this time, really hard. And um, the deserts I found hard, the heat is so debilitating. But at the end of the day, we always stayed in quite nice hotels that weren't very expensive and they usually had air conditioning and they sold, you know, cold Coke and cold beers and and then you would go and visit the towns and you just forgot about the 47 degrees. But um, I found that part of the world very hard because I did get unwell because of the, the water and the quality of the food in some of the smaller towns. Um, and, you know, you get to that stage in life where I'm getting yeah, getting on. <laughs> Still loved it, but um, parts of it were really hard. I, you know, I always find that when I get into a situation, get out into something, you know, it could be inclement weather or whatever, that there always seems to be some reward. Afterwards, I always think, you know, it's so great that I did that, even though I went through all that hardship, that, that that was, you know, I got this reward out of it. Is that what you're finding? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I find that, Jim. I know you rode through some pretty ordinary weather going south there at one stage. And yeah, I like that too. You know, you, you can be so close to the rain and so close to nature, but, uh, and, you know, you, you deal with that. And then when you pull up at the end of the day, it's such a satisfying feeling to say, wow, you know, we did that. We were so close to to everything around us. And uh, then you can sit back and relax and enjoy it. And I'm sure Shirley will feel the same way, um, you know, travelling up that really hard road to get to the bottom of the Aral Sea. It was tough going, yeah, you know, 100 it was k's up, 100 k's back, and it's really rough and rugged. You know, you're talking about three hours each way. Um, but, um, you know, those sites will live are etched in our memories forever. Well, and to be fair, riding the motorcycle and riding pillion are two completely different things. And when you're doing something stressful and you're riding the bike, you've got all your concentration on keeping the bike upright or doing whatever it is you need to do, where Shirley doesn't have that in the back. She has the stress of, is Brian going to lay the bike down or is something going to go wrong? So so it's a lot different, isn't it, Shirley? Yeah. It is It is a lot different. Um, like when we rode up to Nordcap, the wind was really strong and I was actually quite anxious that we were going to get blown off the road and um, because people had told us that the wind would blow caravans over. Um, and that was stressful. But when we got to Nordcap and we'd been out to the monument and taken photos and mucked around and then went and sat in the visitor's centre and looked out at other people being blown around in this really high wind, the thought, I don't believe this is we little Australians. We have made it to the top of Europe on a motorcycle in such inclement weather. So you do feel as though you've achieved stuff. It just gets harder and harder to make the achievement sometimes. That might have had something to do with the champagne and caviar that she had on the table in front of her at the time, Jim. <laughs> I did. It was a nice <laughs> celebration, Jim. And, but, Brian, you said that was some of the toughest riding you've done. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that. The wind uh, was really strong and gusting wind and... Um, Dave Hand, our, our travelling companion in that part of the world who, who's race bikes, he said that was some of the scariest, hairiest riding he'd ever done uh, because it would blow you from one side of the road to the other. And the, the local boys were telling us it's quite often that they would have those big camper vans that would just get blown over off the road. It's incredible. It's, what what yeah. about um, bike shipping? That's one thing I want to ask you guys about because you've done a fair bit of it now. Um, you've got the the whole thing of figuring out where you're going to ship it, who you're going to who you're going to use, and and how you're going to package it up. Can you tell us about that? Okay, um, we have shipped uh, by ourselves, um, uh, half loaded containers and things like that. the The problem with that is you don't know when the container is going to arrive. For example, um, shipping to Chile, we were told it would take uh, 70 to 80 days from Melbourne to um, um, Valparaiso in Chile. It took 83 days. 
um, because uh, the ship gets offloaded, the container gets half unloaded, and it goes back in the ship and it, and it travels around. Uh, this time around, we used um, a shipping uh, a guy who specialises in motorcycle shipping, um, and I would say that that is the most efficient way to go because one, there's economies of scale. Uh, he would fill, and we was taking two 40 foot containers from Australia to Europe, um, so there's efficiencies in cost. Um, he organises to pick you up, take you down to where the bike is and you sign a piece of paper and you ride away. Um, the other point is you know exactly when the bike is going to arrive because it's a full container. He knows when the ship is leaving and he knows when the ship is going to dock in, uh, uh, in our case, Athens. Um, so you can organise your flights, your accommodation. You're not paying for extra accommodation. So that was really handy. Um, we've also flown the bike. Um, the cost of flying a bike is now uh, coming down quite a bit. Um, some places you can do roll-on, roll-off, uh, which we've done from Toronto to Manchester, um, and that was a fantastic service. And there's big advantages in flying a bike when you are travelling. One, you know when the bike is going to arrive, normally on the same plane as you, if not a day later. Um, Two, they want to clear them out of the customs houses at the airports really quickly because they've only got a small area. It's not like a big dock. So they will um, push you through the process. And there's usually customs people uh, on um, working there 24 hours a day. So the bike will be cleared rather quickly. And uh, the other point is that you don't have to pay for accommodation while you're on the road waiting for your bike before you move. So of the three options, it depends where you are, if you're home, I would ship and I would try and use a, um, a dedicated motorcycle shipping firm who maybe have a container going. Uh, that's probably your cheapest option. We looked at the prices of doing it ourselves and using um, uh, a guy who's now become quite a good friend, uh, a shipping um, motorcycle shipping expert, and the price difference was something like $300, but you knew when the bike was going to arrive. And really, when you look at it in a big city, that's less than two days accommodation in some places. So you're better off um, using those facilities, Jim. Yeah, that's the killer, I guess, sitting around waiting for the bike and just having to pay those those high prices. Yeah, that's right. You know, you might you might uh, find some places cheaper, but boy, uh, we were really twiddling our thumbs in Valparaiso waiting for the bike to arrive. And then you've got to deal with the customs and all those uh, agents. Uh, and the language. Yourself and the language barrier, yeah, which... You know, coming into Greece, we felt, okay, um, Dave uh, Milligan's our friend. He, um, he knows how it, he, he's got it all worked out. He's got a shipping agent. He's got a bus that picks us up from the, um, the hotel and takes us down to the port. Wow, for the 300 bucks extra it's going to cost us, that's not a bad service. Does he actually go there? Is he there when you are getting your bike? Yeah, yeah, he was he was there, but he's not there all the time. Uh, he, he was actually shipping his, his and his wife's motorcycle over to do a tour through Europe himself, um, but it's not necessary. Um, once you've got established agents at the other end, um, that's uh, well worth it, you know, um, to, to have people like that um, at the other end that you know are very, very good. And when you put it in the container, are you crating it or are you just rolling it in? No. Um, we're, um, Dave has um, cut cradles, like steel cradles, that you run your bike on. Um, he straps it down and uh, he ensures that uh, you are comfortable with the bike strapped down the way it is. 
the cradle is then forked into a container um, on a forklift and the cradle is screwed to the floor of the container so it does not move. Hmm. And, and it obviously arrived fine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no problem. And, you, and the, the other uh, advantage of that is you can put a lot of gear in their container as well because there's no weight uh, penalty. Uh, so if you want to take all your uh, motorcycle gear on a plane, you try and carry clothes, you are right on the limit of um, additional um, uh, baggage uh, expenses. So uh, using the container is a lot easier. And you guys have always shipped your bike. You don't go and rent a bike anywhere. No, we always uh, use our no, bike. Well, we, have, we rented a bike in Vietnam. Oh, yes. Um, yes. So, but you have to in Vietnam because you can't get one big bikes uh, in there is a waste of time and effort anyway. And uh, you're only talking about, you know, like, uh, I think it was $100 a day, but that was your bike, your fuel, your accommodation, your meals, everything. Oh, wow. Day. Yeah. And a guide, actually, as well. So it's not worth um, you taking your bike in there. But well, everywhere else. We like to have the bike set up the way we like it, the way Brian likes it set up for riding. And um, I know that the pinion seat's nice and comfortable. And when you're doing... You know, we did 47,000 Ks in six months. We're sitting on that bike a fair bit, so you need to know you're comfortable and it takes all our luggage. Yeah. And, and I, I know guys that have gone over to Europe and bought bikes and uh, had nothing but trouble. One guy actually left his on the side of the road in France somewhere, and I think it's still there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that but, is uh, the problem, isn't it, when you're going to buy something somewhere that's used and, and ride it. Yeah, you, you, yeah, you take your chances. Yeah. You do take your chances. So when does the book come out? <laughs> uh, I haven't actually started writing it yet, Jim. So <laughs> I'll start uh, I'm curious: is it going to be in pictures, or are we we're going to have words? Oh well, I might do sketches like our picture talk book, and you that's can what make I was thinking. <laughs> That'd be good. So, so there is no real plans for a book for this. Oh yeah, we will. Um, yeah. At first, I was thinking maybe not, and but then the more we talk to people about it, a lot of interesting things happened that. Um, that a lot of we went to a lot of places where many people haven't been or won't ever go. So, um, and we have a lot of people who've bought our first two books who, um, like the people you were talking about before, they're not actually interested in motorcycling per se, but they like travel and the fact that we do it on a motorcycle gives it that extra layer of um, of interest for them. Uh, we went and did a talk yesterday to a group of old men who were all in their eighties. Mm. And they all had stories about when they used to ride a, uh, ride bikes in their prime and they just loved hearing us talk about our trips. And They wouldn't and, let us go, would they? No, <laughs> we were sort of backing out the door and they're still talking to us. So, um, yeah, there's lots of people out there who get enjoyment out of travelling vicariously. Well, there is, there's interest, I think, on many levels there because you're not only going by motorcycle but your husband and wife and it's man and woman yes. travelling together. There's a lot of things that are of interest there to people. And we're not kids. Right, uh, almost. <laughs> Very young at heart, Jim. <laughs> I can tell that. <laughs> so what's next? Oh. Well, uh, well, I should have asked Brian. Brian, what, what's next? I mean, and you may as well tell Shirley now that while you're sitting there. Yes. Uh, yes. Oh, it's safety in numbers, Jim. <laughs> Jim, look, I, I'm actually looking at a, a little business of um, uh, helping people ship their bikes to New Zealand, if I can. Um, so we'll see how we go there. But uh, I, I would really would love to travel New Zealand, so I'm going to go over there and have a look around and um, do the South Island of New Zealand, which is in our backyard almost. Ah, that's interesting. So you would ship them from Australia to New Zealand yeah. only? 
there any stories that you have from this trip that you wanted to share? Oh, sure. Mm. Well, the Magotcha Angel story has got to be my favourite, being saved mm. by these crazy bikers in Siberia. Um, oh, Norway was just uh, enormous. I'd love Norway. I'd ride Norway again, Jim, any time. Um, the fact that uh, uh, we, we actually saw the one and only Ducati, I reckon, that's in Norway um, because <laughs> it was a guy riding who lives in Tromsø, which is way above the Arctic Circle, and uh, we, we bumped into him on the road and he was heading home. I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I've had to ride three days south to get my bike serviced. So, wow. So he's had to, <laughs> there's nothing up there for him. Uh, and, plenty and, of Harley Davidsons and plenty of BMWs and not much else up there. And he was one of the friendliest young fellas we met on our trip and he invited us home to meet his wife and his children. And, um, of course, we're there in the time of the midnight sun. And uh, I said to his wife, it must be really hard during winter when you don't get any daylight. And she looked at me and she said, oh, it's only for six weeks. And I thought... <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> Only six weeks. Again, perspective. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, if you're used to that. Yeah, it was such a different perspective on life. She said she laughs when she sees things on television about children in America being kept home from school because of the snow. She said if we did that, our kids wouldn't go to school for winter. <laughs> so is it is a completely different perspective and they were just wonderful, friendly people to invite us to their home and they made us reindeer stew. Well, that's kind of sad. Well, I, I can tell you it's not something we have shared with our grandchildren because I don't think they would appreciate us eating reindeer. No, and it probably pops up around Christmas time too. You, you tend to think about that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly. We were offered whale in, uh, in Norway no. in the Lofoten Islands and I politely declined, and the guy said, but it's fresh. The whalers only brought it in today. And I said, I'm really sorry. We're Australians. We spend a lot of our time trying to stop whaling. Mm. So I really couldn't eat whale. And he was a little befuddled by that. He didn't understand that at all. Do you guys normally take all the invitations that come your way? Um, look, it uh, depends, Jim. Um, you know, we'd, we'd hate to impose on people too much, uh, but... Uh, if uh, people really um, want to invite us, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll go there and uh, and um, share stories and a few laughs and things like that. But of course, we always reciprocate. If anyone comes to Australia that's we've stayed with, they're more than welcome to come and stay with us. We actually went to get the bike serviced in Denmark, and the man who was serving the bike. Uh, servicing the bike, not only put aside a room for us, but one for our travelling companion. And we said, no, 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 we can't stay the night. And he said, yes, you yes, must, yes. You must. And we ended up staying two nights. And we went riding and he had dinners for us with all his friends. It was absolutely fantastic. And we'd never met this fellow. That's just great. And you, yeah. you've been keeping, um, well, you, you, you were keeping your website up to date. It's not completely up to date right now, is it? Uh, it hasn't got Korea on it. It's got, yeah. it's got us down to Vladivostok. Right. That's it's your job, Shirley. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I so should probably to... tell people we're home, shouldn't I, really? <laughs> yes, you probably should. So where That's should people true. go to find out more about the trip? So, um, yeah, the uh, the website is aussiesoverland.com.au and we're also Aussies Overland on Facebook. And that's mm. A-U-S-S-I-E-S, Aussies. You know, I've been asking this a little bit uh, every now and then when I'm speaking to people because some people are leaning heavily towards Facebook for posting everything on. Does it concern you at all that, that you have all this work put into a website that is really not yours, that somebody can just shut down anytime? 
on Facebook. Well, yeah, think about think about um, MySpace. Yeah, look, uh, we haven't really thought about it, Jim. I, I, I've just been keeping basic things up to date on Facebook, really, for our friends to follow. But um, uh, a lot of the, the stories are in our day diary that we'll do that surely will eventually turn into a book. Mm. Yeah, yeah we treat Facebook as a bit of a postcard. Yeah. And just to let people know we're alive and well and put in, you know, a few photos. We don't go into the a lot of the ins and outs of the trip and certainly not the you know, the emotional, personal stories, things like that, that we do put in the book, um, in their books. But, uh, and the webpage also is like a postcard just to let people know the basics of where we've been. Yeah. I just noticed there was a period there. It seemed like there was quite a few people saying that they were just going to use Facebook. They were sort of pushing everybody to Facebook. And uh, yeah, that's, that's something for me. I, I always think about that and think, uh, I don't think I want to invest that much in something that I'm, I'm not in control of. But no, yeah. and- I'm the same, Jim. I, I think that's right. You know, that Facebook is a, is a great medium just to stay in touch with people. Mm-hmm. And that's all don't, don't put your life out there. Because it is there forever. And I think... Um, particularly young people, I think, are waking up to that now. And a lot of people in Australia are saying that Facebook's just for oldies now. Oldies? Yeah, oldies, as in old people rather than young people are using goodness knows what, Instagram or something, these things that I don't Uh, understand, Twitter. I don't get that. But, yeah. I'm still just getting the hang of Facebook. It is, you know, and I remember hearing not long ago, they were talking on CBC here about just that and how people are going to have to change the way they look at things. Because right now, when you go for a job, everybody looks at Facebook and all that sort of thing. You know, you look at if you're going to hire someone, you look at anything you can to try and get a feel for what they're like. But so many kids have posted so many incriminating things that there's going to have to be a mind shift there. You know, that you figure, you know, between the ages of 14 and, you know, 19 or something like that you're just going to have to ignore that stuff because virtually everybody you go to hire is going to have it and yeah. and you you put something on and your friend likes it so their friend sees it because they've liked it and all of a sudden a heap of people that you don't know are looking at your material yeah. and um it's one thing I, I always say to people when we used to work in the late 15th century with written letters that you would post <laughs> to people you would no more think of photocopying a letter that you'd been sent and giving it to 100 people. But people do that on Facebook and with email all the time because they don't think of it as personal correspondence. They don't think of it as something that you're just sharing with your friends, which is why when we put stuff on Facebook, it's stuff that we don't care if the world sees it. It's 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 not a big problem, but um, personal stuff we don't put on. And, and for kids nowadays, really, I think, Parents need to take a lot more control over what they do um, on the internet. Um, it, it, it can be a real problem uh, later on in life, and it can be quite dangerous, particularly for young young uh, young boys and girls. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it's very difficult because they have so much access to the internet. I mean, we're talking about the access, that, and I find that interesting. You know, you're going through Russia, and you're finding you get you have internet everywhere. I mean, that really says something, doesn't it? And and we have all these devices that we access the internet on, especially kids. Yes, that's yeah. right. That's right. But also in, in Russia, you've got to remember, it's still a, a pretty uh, controlled environment. And I've got no doubt that uh, things are very closely monitored uh, as to what goes goes on uh, over the um, the internet. 
Oh, I'll bet. I sat in the coffee shop the other day, um, and uh, there was a, a group of four sitting sort of right bes- like behind me, or, or sort of in front of me, rather. But anyway, right close by. And it was a mother, father, and two kids, I assume. But they all sat there on their devices for about 45 minutes while I worked on my computer <laughs> and used the internet. They didn't hardly, I think they might have said two or three words. That's it. And it was all heads down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Conversation via internet. Whoa, isn't that great? I say get a motorcycle. That's... Exactly. When we're both working on our laptops in this house, we have one rule. Do not email each other. If we need to speak to each other, actually move to the other room and speak. Now, I'm going to tell Elizabeth about that because I often get messages from her while I'm working on my computer. (laughs) And and what I hear is that she doesn't want to interrupt me. But, I mean, it still pops up on my screen. I'll sort of look at her. I guess if it's about work and the radio station, that's different. But if it's um, what would you like for dinner tonight or when do you want your morning tea, I think you can move from one room to the other and ask the question. (laughs) Well, Shirley and Brian, thank you very much for coming on once again. I always enjoy talking to you guys. It's a pleasure, Jim. It's It's always good fun. Absolute pleasure, Jim, and good luck, mate. Hope it goes well for you. And you can find out more about the Rickses by visiting their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Or, of course, you can always drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and look at the show notes for this episode. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. Sign up for their e-rider newsletter, too, at maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, when you're on the road, or off the road for that matter, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and can fill a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA and with a five-year warranty. Check it out at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it and special thanks to our co-producer elizabeth martin as well as our sponsors you got to realize it's the sponsors that help keep the show on the road so to speak so special thanks to max bmw best rest products aero stitch manufacturing and the good adventure company and when you drop by make sure you let them know that you heard them here on adventure rider radio I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. It's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.